1 Samuel 15, and I, I hope you keep that passage open as we go through today. The, the chapter sizzles with drama and plot-shifting suspense. But it's also a tremendous letdown. It's the chapter where our fears are confirmed. See, the, the book of 1 Samuel is like, it's almost like a reality TV show where the producers have built up a certain character towards a climax. But when the lights come on, the star is shown to be annoying, self-centered, and frankly, not very likable. We come to realize here, although it's been hinted at throughout, that Saul, with his dynasty, is just an awfully painful false start in Israel's national history. The people had demanded a king and been granted one according to their own ideals. Since 1 Samuel chapter 9, Saul has been at center stage, and with this chapter, the spotlight will shift to another, David, the man after God's own heart. And this chapter is constructed to help us see the dramatic turn away from Saul's house as the narrative leans in to chapter 16, where we are introduced to David. The text highlights the gravity of Saul's disobedience by the way the episode is set up. Look again at verses 1 to 3. The prophet Samuel underlines his own authority by reminding Saul that God had invested him with his position. Saul is told that the Amalekites' sin from way back in Exodus 17, their ambush, which was defeated as Moses' arms were lifted high, will now be punished with none to be spared from man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Having been so commanded as a theocratic king to execute God's just decree on a rebellious people, Saul, at first, follows the script perfectly. He gathers one of the largest armies of his reign in verse 4. He shows appropriate mercy to the non-implicated Kenite peoples in verse 6. And in verse 7, his victory covers a massive geographic extent, entailing the whole known territory of the nomadic Amalekites. But then... Saul flagrantly disobeys his divine commission. Verse 8, he leaves King Agag alive, and he keeps all the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good. This is not the story of one misplaced lamb that Israel forgot to slaughter, or even Rachel hiding idols under her dress. And while Saul later claims that he was planning to sacrifice the animals, the excuse is truly a lame one. From Achan's sin in hiding spoil from Jericho, through every conquest that Joshua had led, Israel was taught that all that God ordered to be devoted to destruction had to be destroyed. Furthermore, verse 12 reports that Saul led the army not straight to the cultic center of Gilgal, where the sacrifices might be performed, but first to Carmel, where he erected a memorial in his own honor. 
Saul's self-centered memorial, then, is one of a series of plot points that highlight the dysfunctional, na- dysfunctional nature of Saul's leadership. Two weeks ago, Tracy preached on 1 Samuel 8, where Israel asked for a king according to their own ideals, and God let them have it. Samuel hearkens back to this in verses 17 to 19. Despite Saul's low background, it was God who had raised him up, anointed him, and given him an assignment. He was to destroy the Amalekites and all they possessed. Yet Saul refused to listen to God's voice. The narrator also weaves two surprising responses into this developing story. First, Saul repents, and yet Samuel, as God's representative, does not forgive him. Saul rolls forth this confession, starting in verse 24. And we would have expected the Lord to immediately forgive Saul. Instead, we get this back and forth, in which it appears that Saul is not after the forgiveness of the Lord, but rather is engaged in a desperate grasping after the status and the prestige of his being a king anointed by Samuel. This grasping in its pathetic hopelessness is vividly manifested as Saul seizes Samuel's robe and yet can only tear off a shred. Well, 1 Samuel 13 had seen Samuel promise Saul that your kingdom will not continue Here, the prophecy goes further, condemning not only Saul's dynasty, but his person. With Samuel's words, the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. The torn garment foreshadows the the prophet Ahijah's tearing 12 cloth pieces to symbolize the 12 tribes torn apart after Solomon's death. But it also highlights Saul's pathetic clawing after the trappings of kingship, while his heart remains far from God. His words betray his heart at the end of this sequence. Return with me, Saul says, that I may bow before the Lord your God. If we were reading a simple moralistic Bible story, we might have expected Saul to repent and then for God to forgive him, at which point Saul would then finish the destruction of the Amalekites by killing King Agag. But the jarring lack of forgiveness, along with the theatrical tearing of the robe, forced us to see the narrator's primary point. Saul's dynasty of disobedience is being stripped away. And we see a foreshadowing of David in verse 28, where Samuel declares, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to the better king, or has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So as readers, we're keyed up to look forward to a better king who will be introduced to us in the next chapter. But even in chapter 15 today, before David has been introduced, Samuel represents those who keep covenant with God. And so it's Samuel who must finish the job by killing Agag in verses 
32 to 33. The second surprising response lies in the Lord's regret. Indeed, we are told that the Lord, that the Lord regrets twice in this chapter, but we are also told that he does not regret. Look with me at verse 11. The Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And much the same is said in verse 36. The Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. However, these two statements within the narrative narrative are punctuated in the middle with verse 29 where the narrator affirms that the Lord, or that Samuel rather, affirms that the Lord is not a man that he should have regret. Clearly, the narrator is challenging us to put on our theological lenses and to understand how God can and how he cannot regret. Regret's a broad word with an array of sub-meanings to it. And as verse 29 teaches us, God does not regret in the sense of having made a mistake, of being culpable, or, or even of being sad or angry in the way that Samuel is. Furthermore, verse 29 teaches, God does not lie. It's not like he's been deceiving the people of Israel, playing them along with Saul's kingship. Rather, in his sovereignty, he allows the people to make a bad decision. But God does regret in that he moves to the next step in the story. 1 Samuel 15 emphasizes God's regret then so that we can understand that the story is making a turn with this chapter. In these same verses, verses 11 and 36, Samuel is angry and grieved. And in one sense, he's right to be. Saul was a rebellious king in a broken world. But God's regret is not regret to wallow in. Saul's line was not the messianic line. And so as God calls Samuel to anoint a king who is better than Saul, in 1 Samuel 16, he will tell Samuel, look ahead to 16 verse 1, how long? Will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. God's regret entails turning the page. David's kingship, then, is longed for by its absence in 1 Samuel 15. These surprising character responses draw our attention to the void that needs to be filled. The new king must not be like Saul. David proves to be a man capable of expressing deep and heartfelt repentance. We need only think of his rich confession to God in Psalm 51, after his murder of Uriah. Against you, you only, have I sinned, he prayed. The contrast with Saul's repentance for the eyes of men is acute. Furthermore, the cutting short of Saul's dynasty in today's passage stands in contrast with the Davidic line. In 2 Samuel 7, 
the Lord moves on to greater and, and grander promises, saying to David, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Faithful Israelites tutored on this contrast between Saul and David were thus yearning to catch a glimpse of the messianic offspring of David, Jesus Christ. But returning to 1 Samuel 15 here, we need to understand the heinousness and the twistedness of Saul's sin as brought out in this dialogue of verses 14 to 31. But we should not observe Saul's sin and draw for ourselves the lesson, oh, I need to be less greedy. Rather, we understand that the Bible is knit through with the seed of Cain and the seed of Seth. The house of Saul and the house of David. Our flesh and Christ's spirit living in us. We cannot help but recognize the humanness of Saul here. But our response is to fix our eyes all the more firmly on our Davidic Messiah. Saul's greeting to Samuel in verse 14 shows all the self-deception of someone poorly attuned or, or forgetful of the word of God and its implications. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord, says Saul. And yet, he has quite obviously and blatantly disobeyed the Lord's commandment. Samuel's evocative response must stop, stop him short. What then? Is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Scripture is full of sin, much of it subtle, hidden, and at times barely acknowledged. But Samuel's initial response highlights the obviousness and the weight of Saul's disobedience. Saul struts up claiming, mission accomplished, while buying and mine resound from every corner. His moral failure is not just an oversight. The crumbs from the cookie jar lie scattered on the toddler's shirt. When I was about five years old, the worship service of this church at its old Westley Road location was wrapping up. And I'm not sure if I was in a hurry to get some goodies from Fellowship Hall or just go play, but as the service came to conclusion, I irreverently ran down the main aisle. You know what a traffic jam it can be at the end of a service trying to get out of the sanctuary. And as a five-year-old, I had no interest in small talk. And I, I remember people coming out from the right and the left of the pews, almost like the walls of the Red Sea collapsing in on me, but I beat them out. What I didn't anticipate was that, for whatever reason, I ran directly into my mom as I came to the back of the sanctuary. And uh, she was most seriously displeased. <laughs> Any of you who know my mom are aware that no five-year-old excuse was going to explain away my misdeed. I was marched to the front of the sanctuary in our pew and forced to patiently progress my way out. I can relate to Saul here. Now, from a literary perspective, 
Saul loses control of the narrative as soon as Samuel enters from stage right. Look again at verses 13 to 14, where Samuel punctures Saul's painfully obvious falsehood. Or verse 15, where Saul shifts to another weak excuse, where using the third person pronoun, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Like Adam in the garden, Saul abrogates his leadership and quickly blames they. I mentioned earlier the way in which verse 17, where Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, points us back to 1 Samuel chapters 8 and 9 and the beginning of the whole Saul arc. At that time, a younger and less self-confident Saul had said, Am I not a Benjamite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? See, Saul had seemed at the start to have a healthy humility, recognizing his unworthiness to assume the throne of Israel. But as the Saul story has developed, and we have seen him become self-aggrandizing, impetuous, and now disobedient, we are left to think back to this, to his seemingly humble beginnings with Samuel. Had Saul truly been humble? Or had he just harbored a false modesty that stemmed only from modest circumstances, masking a spirit that simply awaited empowerment to manifest its true self-centeredness. Saul again prevaricates in verses 20 to 21, blaming the people and suggesting good spiritual motives behind his misstep. Look there at verse 22, where Samuel drills down, confronting Saul with the obedience question that lies at the heart of the issue. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? And Samuel raises the stakes by comparing Saul's sin, rebellion, and rejection of the word of the Lord with the sins of divination and idolatry. While Saul seems intent on minimizing what he thought of of as his mouse-sized sins, Samuel sees the elephant in the room. And Samuel's comparison of Saul's sin to two red-letter sins is especially well-targeted for Saul. Indeed, later on in, in 1 Samuel 28, we learn that Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. He had been fervent to stamp out these wicked practices but with a disobedient spirit, he fails to perceive his own hypocrisy and in that same chapter will ultimately degrade to consulting a witch's divination in his final hours. So let me just draw out the ways that we identify with Saul in this passage. First, Saul's motivation for his sin appears confused and multi-layered to us as outsiders. It's unclear how much he himself could describe the subterranean reasons 
for his rebellion. But at least three potential motivations are hinted at. First, he may have been self-indulgent and greedy, maybe expecting to enjoy the tender morsels that were normally spared when a burnt offering was made. Samuel appears to criticize this tendency back in verse 19, when he uses that hungry clause, you pounce on the spoil, in describing Saul's actions. Second, as so often with us, Saul's baser motivations are hidden behind a facade of religiosity. He looks like, at least in some sense to himself, someone who is striving to be a religious leader, to bring glory to God. But in his religiosity, Saul misses the true meaning of sacrifice. Sacrifices were set up to teach Israelite hearts to look not to their own capacity for cleansing. Abraham understood this as God provided the lamb in Isaac's place. David would understand it as well as he prayed in Psalm 51, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And Saul's true spirit in the midst of these religious acts is suggested by his actions. He raises a memorial in his own honor. He likely kept Agag alive in order to achieve a kingly ransom or a triumphal march of sorts. A third motivation for Saul's sin is the one he himself expresses. Look again at verse 24. With his own mouth, he says that he sinned because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He gives into what you might call peer pressure, or at least a desire for popularity. Indeed, throughout 1 Samuel, the narrator highlights repeatedly that Saul is someone who fears the words of the people more than he fears the word of God. He fears the people's authority more than he fears the Lord's authority. Thus, in today's chapter, with its repeated references to the authority that the Lord had vested in Saul, look again at verse 1, verse 17, we must be struck that Saul does not believe God. We must recognize the root of unbelief, which proves to be fundamental to his people-fearing and his disobedience. Now, as we apply this story to our lives today, Saul's sin is one point of connection across the centuries. The New Testament, indeed, takes Old Testament imagery of war and recasts our enemy, not as nation-states, but as indwelling sin. Peter warns us against the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Not one of us is perfectly holy, and Christ calls us to a complete eradication of sin so that by the Spirit we might put to death the deeds of the body. Romans 8.12 Saul deceived himself. He wanted those fat animals. 
And we may have a sin, whether a flagrant big sin or a subtle sin, perhaps an attitude of the heart. And we may love that sin like those fat animals and not want to give it up. We may be tempted to destroy, to complete, to, to refuse to destroy indwelling sin, but maybe to be content with maybe some lingering remnants of them. Hear the call to true repentance. Admit the sin, turn away from it, and battle as hard against it as Saul should have. Sometimes when we struggle with an indwelling sin, we can feel hopeless in long, repetitive battles. Yet Christ battled against sin perfectly. He snuffed out its power completely. He has broken the power of sin in our lives, freeing us to follow in the Spirit. Another point of application lies with our divine commission. Our mission today is not to wipe out any ethnic group, but rather to reach every ethnic group with the offer of salvation. Sometimes in history, God has delivered full judgment on a people, whether the the people in Noah's time or in today's story, the, the Amalekites. But now we are living in a period of history where God is manifesting his patience, not yet his judgment. 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way, God is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. As missionaries to Africa, where my family returns on Tuesday, Matthew 24.14 stands as both an encouragement and a promise. This gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And yet many 21st century observers are describing a slackening in our efforts towards the preaching of the gospel in all the world. Albert Muller critiques the church in the West as he describes a, quote, failure of theological nerve, a devastating loss of biblical and doctrinal conviction, and the result is retreat on the mission fields of the world and regression on the home front. I see a connection between Saul's false modesty in our church sometimes in the West. We can sometimes have a false humility when it comes to cross-cultural missions because we see so clearly the mistakes of cultural imperialism made by our missionary forebears. We recognize how much we Americans must miss in learning a language or incarnating within a new culture. We see our own smallness and inability as Saul did. But the church's job of taking the gospel to the whole world is not about your capability or my capability. You and I are pathetically small for the task. This job is about God's command. He commands it, and in his strength, we must do it. Please hear me here. I pray that no one comes out of this service feeling 
guilt-tripped into becoming an overseas missionary, the danger of a Saul-like act of religious devotion is too great. My point here is not to critique strategy or technique, but we must honestly look at the map of unreached peoples around the world and recognize this is our job. This is the job of Christ's church from the south, from the east, and yes, from Princeton. Our job is to proclaim the gospel worldwide, not because it helps change societies or is validated by historical analysis, although I would be happy to argue in another setting that it does and is, but because our Lord has commanded it. And our invitations to those outside of Christ's kingdom are full of hope because the story continues to move forward. We have passed by Saul and are on to David's heir. Saul misuses sacrifices in today's story, but Christ understood. Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, he says, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Christ made his body a sacrifice. Where Saul and so many since him have twisted acts of religious devotion into some kind of external badge of religiosity, Christ, through his climactic offering of himself, nailed all our shame and sin to the cross. Christ obeyed. Over and over again, he chose to deny himself. He refused the allure of greed, divination, people-pleasing, selfishness. His life's work, he said, was not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Christ fulfills what we cannot. 1 Samuel 15 should be a letdown. It's designed to drive our hearts forward into the next chapter in hungering dependency. I hope we see our inadequacy, our tendency to follow Saul, and that we long to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Jesus, who obeyed and made the perfect sacrifice. Let's pray together. Dear Jesus, we confess all the ways we look like Saul, how we grasp after the trappings of kingship and power. But you, dear King, gave yourself away. You have brought us into your kingdom, a kingdom that shall never end, the living, unshakable kingdom of God. You will rule in perfect holiness forever. Amen.